0: Would you turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John? John was called by the Lord Jesus along the the shore of the Sea of Galilee while he was mending his nets. And he left them behind and followed, and it's now about 65 years later and John is still following. But as he writes this letter, one of the last to be written in the New Testament, we find that he's mending again. He's mending relationships in the family of God. He's mending relationships vertically and horizontally. He wants to mend your relationship with your heavenly Father, and he wants to mend your relationships with your brothers and sisters. Now, at the time, John writes, the church is also about 65 years old. It had had time to grow in knowledge, to grow in size, To grow in balance. In fact, in chapter 2, verses 12 to 14, we find that in the church at that time, there were children, young men, and fathers, spiritually speaking. And so they had had time to grow and make progress, and yet John writes to them because he knew that they needed to be brought back to the basics. They needed to have some relationships repaired. And I think that's fitting because I think that kind of describes where we're at as a church as well. We have grown in knowledge. We have grown in size. We have a great variety of people. We have mature Christians. We have young Christians. We have grown and we have made progress. And yet I think we need to be brought back to the basics. I don't think there's anybody here who would say my relationship with the Father is right where it ought to be. I don't need any mending. I don't think there's anybody here who would say my relationship with my brothers and sisters is right where it ought to be. Doesn't need any mending. I think we have to honestly agree that we need this loving older man, John, who is now somewhere between 80 and 90 years old to call us his little children And to call us back to right relationships in the family of God. I know I need that. And I'm excited about us going through this letter because I know you need that as well. John is a mender. Now this morning we just want to look at how he introduces this book in chapter 1, verses 1-4. to And a couple features stand out immediately. Number one. Unlike most other New Testament letters, there is no typical salutation. It doesn't begin John the Apostle of Jesus Christ to the church at Derby or Berea or Ephesus. And if you look through the book, you'll find that there are no personal notes and there are no personal greetings. There's only one other letter in the New Testament that is written this way. Every other letter begins with the name of the writer, or at least the title of the writer. And the only other book is the book of Hebrews. And then the second thing that stands out about this introduction is that it is complex, it's grammatically tangled. It's not a simple sentence. This would be a very difficult first sentence to diagram. It begins with four relative clauses and then it has a parenthetical thought in the middle. In fact, let me just read it to you and just see if you can find the subject, verb, and object in this sentence. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Did you pick it out? You don't see it until you get down to verse 3. It says, we proclaim to you. And that little phrase capsulizes what John wants to talk about as he introduces this book. He wants to talk about what we proclaim. He wants to take us back to the basics. He wants to take us back to the fundamental foundational message. He wants to take us back to what he and the other apostles taught. And to do that, he's going to talk about three things in this introduction. He's going to talk about how, what, and why. He's going to talk about how we receive the message, what the message is, and why we proclaim it. And we're going to use that as our outline this morning. We're going to look at the character of the message, how, the content of the message, what, and the consequences of the message, why. First of all, the character of the message. How did John and the others get their message? Well, it's in verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the Word of life. How did the message come? Well, John indicates it to us when he talks about the Word What is a Word? A Word is that which is communicated. How did the Word come? It came as the Word of life. Now what is that? Well, that's the same Word John talked about in his Gospel in the very first verse. There he started the Gospel and said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You see, the Word is not a what. The Word is a who. And who is the Word? The Word is God made flesh. The Word is Jesus Christ. You see, God's message came in a person, the person of Jesus Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews starts his letter this way in Hebrews 1.1. He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, has spoken to us, how? In His Son. You see, God has spoken in the most profound way possible. God's message is embodied in a person. And that person is the Word of life, What a fitting title for the Lord Jesus. He is the Word. A Word communicates. And the Lord Jesus has come to communicate to us. He is the final message of God, the ultimate message of God. God has spoken in His Son. And just so that we don't miss the unique character of this message, John adds several clauses to define Him. He says, first of all, what was from the beginning. The Word didn't begin in Bethlehem. Jesus did not begin when He became a man. He is the same Word John spoke about in John 1.1. He is the preexistent One. You know, it's interesting. There are three books in the, in the New Testament that begin... At the beginning, or in the Bible, that begin at the beginning. The most obvious one is Genesis 1:1, where it says, "In the beginning, God created." That establishes for us what the beginning is. In the beginning, God created. And then there's a second book, and that is John chapter one and verse one, that begins this way. And there, John writes, "In the beginning, was the Word." Now, don't miss this. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created. That establishes the beginning. John chapter 1 and verse 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. So in the beginning, John chapter 1 and verse 1 goes back before the beginning and talks about in the beginning was the Word. Now if Jesus was before the beginning, that means he was without beginning. And then we come to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1, and he says what was from the beginning. Now he's moved into time. From that time forth, he talks about the Lord Jesus. So you put these three passages together, and what we learn is he was in the beginning, he was before the beginning, and he was from the beginning. He always has been, he always is, and he always will be. He is the pre-existent one. He is the eternal one. I am. And yet having established that, John goes on to say, what we have heard. John says, I heard him speak. John could say, I heard him say, I am the living bread. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. John says, I heard him say, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. I heard him say, I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. I heard him say, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. I heard him say, I am the resurrection and the life. What we have heard. And then he says, what we have seen with our eyes. John could say, I saw him with these very eyes. John could say, I saw him when he spit on the ground and he took that clay and he put it on the eyes of a man born blind and I saw that man come back from washing in the pool of Siloam and he could see. John could say, I saw Jesus when he cast the demons out of the man named Legion. I saw him when he took the five loaves and the two fish and he multiplied them to feed 5,000. I saw him walk across the top of the Sea of Galilee. I saw him call Lazarus out of the grave. I saw him crucified. I saw him after he rose from the dead. I saw him ascend up into heaven. What we have seen with our eyes And then he adds, what we beheld and our hands handled. John says, we beheld Him. Now that's a different word from we saw Him. He's saying here a stronger word. It means to watch attentively, to contemplate, to investigate. In fact, it's the Greek word theomai, from which we get our word theater. And John is saying, we watched Him carefully, as if he was on the stage. We examined everything that he did. And then he adds to that, that we touched him with these very hands. John, as he's writing to us, could say, Jesus took a wash basin and a towel, and he washed my feet. I'm the one who laid my head on his chest. I rubbed against him and I touched him day in and day out for three and a half years. You see, that is how the message was communicated. In a person, the word of life. And John says, we heard him, we saw him, we examined him, we touched him. Listen carefully. Christianity is not based on some abstract ideas. Christianity is not based on some philosophical line of thinking. It's based on a person. John says, we knew Him, we fellowshiped with Him, we lived with Him, we ate with Him, we touched Him, we walked with Him, we heard His words, and we've never forgotten them. The Word is a person. Jesus Christ. And that's why becoming a Christian is not simply a matter of joining a church or agreeing with a certain creed or signing a doctrinal statement. Becoming a Christian is being related to a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of you are related to somebody. Children are related to parents. Parents are related to children. And you're related because you share the same life. And in the same way, a Christian is one who shares the life of God. A Christian is one who has a relationship with a person. The only person in whom is eternal life. And that's Jesus Christ. John 1.4 says, in Him was life. 1 John 5.12 says, He who has the Son has the life. And here John calls Him the Word of life. The message was communicated in a person. And so to receive the message, you have to receive the person. That's the character of the message. And then secondly, we see the content of the message in verse 2. What is it that the Word communicated? What was John's message? Well, look at verse 2. It's really a parenthesis. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What was the message? The message was life. He calls Him the Word of life. In verse 2, He says the life was manifested, and again He says we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, he says the life was manifested. Twice he says that. What does it mean? Well, John is saying that eternal life was made visible in Jesus Christ. Now, let's think about that for a minute. In what way could John see eternal life in Jesus? Well, let me suggest three ways. Number one, Jesus manifests life by showing us the character of God. He was God manifest in the flesh. He could say in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when John looked at the Lord Jesus, he saw the essence of God. He saw the life of God. But then I think there's a second way that the Lord Jesus manifested life. And that is He manifested life through His death and subsequent resurrection. You see, the best way to see life in the Lord Jesus was against the backdrop of death. His life was really manifest when He went into death and death could not hold Him, and so He rose again. And we see His resurrection life. And of course, from our standpoint, the only way we could see life is through His death because we were dead ourselves spiritually. We could not see the life of God. And so when Jesus came, He laid down His life so that we might have life. And that's why after He rose, He said in in John 14, 19, because I live, you shall live also. You know, it's interesting to me that that same principle applies to us as well the best way for you as a Christian to manifest the life of God is through death to self. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.10, we always carry about in the body the dying of Jesus that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Life is manifest best through death. But then there's a third way that John could say that he saw life, eternal life, manifest in the Lord Jesus. And that is that he manifests life through his, through his relationship to the Father. You see, Jesus didn't just come to show us God. He also came to show us man right, right, rightly related to the Father. He walked through life showing us how to walk in dependence on the Father, How to walk in communion with the Father. And you see, that is really what life is. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is a relationship. Eternal life is knowing and being rightly related to the God of this universe. You see, Jesus showed us that As he walked on this earth for three and a half years, and then he laid down his life in order that we might have that. You know, it's interesting to me that there's only one time in the suffering and death of the Lord Jesus that he cried out. When he was being scourged, he didn't cry. When he was being mocked, he didn't cry out. When they were driving the nails through his hands and his feet, he didn't say a word. He only cried out one time. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You see, the thing that troubled the Lord Jesus was separation from the Father. That's what He enjoyed. That was the life He manifested, And He laid it down on the cross so that you and I might have that same relationship. You see, that's what eternal life is all about. Because eternal life is not something we are waiting to get. Eternal life is something we already have. And so when you think about eternal life, you don't have to think about mansions. When you think about eternal life... It's not sailing around the universe someday. Eternal life is not like some cosmic amusement park, six flags over heaven. Eternal life is being rightly related to God the Father. And we enjoy that right now. We enjoy that quality of life right now as believers. You see, God's whole plan of redemption is to bring us back into right relationship with Him. Just just look back for a moment to John chapter 1. I want you to notice something. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. There's relationship. Verse 4, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was no relationship. Verse 10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, and the world did not know Him. No relationship. Verse 11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. No relationship. But then we come to verse 12 and it says, but as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become the children of God. There's a relationship. And that's the life that He's talking about. And that is the content of the message. The message is life in Jesus Christ. And life is a relationship with God the Father. Which brings us to the third point. In 1 John chapter 1, in the introduction, and that is the consequences of the message. Why did John proclaim it? What are the desired results? Well, he mentions two. The first is fellowship. Look at verse 3 What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, in order that you also may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Jesus Christ John proclaimed the message to us so that we would have fellowship the word fellowship means to share in common with we share a common life with the Lord and with each other and that's what fellowship is fellowship is a relationship and John says we want to, want you to have it with us horizontally and we want you to have it with the Father and with His Son, vertically. You say, well, how can I have fellowship with God when I can't see Him? I mean, it's easy for John to talk about fellowship with the Lord Jesus and fellowship with the Father because he saw the Lord Jesus. He touched Him. He talked to Him. For us, it's different. For us, it's harder. Well, let's think about that logic. Did the disciples fellowship with the Lord Jesus for the three years that they walked with him? Not really. In fact, at the end of that time, in John chapter 14 and verse 9, Jesus turns to Philip and says, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not come to know me? He walked with Jesus for three years and he really didn't know Jesus. The two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. And they say, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They had no spiritual eyes. You see, in order to have fellowship, you don't have to necessarily see someone. You don't have to touch someone. In order to have fellowship, you have to have spiritual eyes. The disciples enjoyed their deepest fellowship when they looked back. And I'm sure there were many times after the Lord had ascended into heaven when they got together and they said, you know, you remember when He said this? You remember when He did that? That was fellowship. They were sharing in common the Lord Jesus and as they shared Him, He became more precious to them. And that's what the writers have done in the Gospels. They have allowed us to see through their eyes to hear through their ears, to touch through their hands. And as they share the Gospel with us, that's fellowship. And Jesus becomes more precious to each of us. That's why it's interesting to me in verse 3, John says, I'm writing this so that you might have fellowship with us. Now, John is writing a letter in order that he might have fellowship with his readers. Now, that, uh, that might confuse your your definition of what fellowship is. Some of us think you can't have fellowship without food. You know, fellowship is a softball game. Fellowship is a barbe- barbecue. But see, fellowship can happen in those contexts, but fellowship is sharing in common with. Fellowship is with when you and I share the Lord Jesus in common. And that's why John can write this letter and have fellowship with his readers because he is sharing the Lord Jesus and making Him more precious to those who read. That's why when I read 1 John, I have fellowship with John and he's been dead for 1,900 years because he's sharing Jesus with me and he's making Him more precious. That's what fellowship is. That's why when you have a softball game, when you have a barbecue, if you want to have fellowship, you have to share with each other so that Jesus is more precious because that's what fellowship, that is our common bond, the life that we enjoy with each other. And you know, fellowship also has some other features to it. When you read about the early church, they were probably the ideal model of fellowship on a horizontal plane. And we read about the early church that they shared not only Christ in common, but they shared their possessions in common, all that they had. Acts chapter 2 and verse 44 says they had all things in common. All things in koinonia. All things in fellowship. They shared them. And they sold their goods and gave to those who had need. They shared their possessions. But it also tells us that they shared their very persons in common. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says day by day, they were taking their meals together. And so fellowship involves sharing my possessions, all that I have, and sharing my person, all that I am. Now, when we apply that to fellowship with the Father, the same thing holds true. You see, God expects me to share with Him all that I have. You know, what's interesting is when I put all that I have at His disposal he puts all that he has at my disposal. It's not a fair trade, but it's a great trade for me. Like the little boy who brought his five loaves and two lit fish and gave them to the Lord Jesus. What What happened? It multiplied. That's fellowship. When I give him all that I have, and he extends to me all that he has. And it's also fellowship when I share with him all that I am. You know, when you have fellowship with someone, you share with them sometimes things that you wouldn't share with anybody else. You share honestly and openly with them. And that's what God wants from you and me as well. Later in this same chapter in verse nine, our part is if we confess our sins. See, you can't have fellowship with God if you're hiding your sins. You need to be honest with Him about the things that you're doing. His side is recorded by John in John 15, 15, where Jesus says, I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. How many things? All things. We reveal honestly with Him who we are, and He reveals fully to us who He is. So the first consequence of the message is fellowship. Fellowship. It's horizontal and it's vertical. It's sharing life in common, all that I have and all that I am. And then there's a second consequence, and that is joy. Look at verse 4. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now happiness is one of the goals that everybody has. In fact, it's defined as one of our unalienable rights in the Declaration of Independence. We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem with pursuing happiness is that you have to catch it. And for most people, that's easier said than done. Where do you find happiness? An old Chinese proverb reads this way. If you wish to be happy for one hour, get intoxicated. If you wish to be happy for three days, get married. If you wish to be happy for eight days, kill your pig and eat it. If you wish to be happy forever, learn to fish. Now, if nothing else, I don't know. If nothing else, that illustrates to us that there's no widely held consensus on where you find true happiness. But you know, the problem most people have with happiness is that they link happiness to their circumstances. When things are going well, I'm happy. When things are not going well, I'm not so happy. And since circumstances can be pretty difficult, that probably explains to us why happiness is so noticeably missing in so many people's lives. But you know what? The real tragedy is that even in the church, there are people that aren't really happy. In fact, some Christians seem to have the idea that the true measure of spirituality is is the absence of joy. That you can measure how holy a man or woman is by the length of their face. Long face, ooh, spiritual. Garrison Keillor once said, some people think it's difficult to be a Christian and to laugh, but I think it's the other way around. God writes a lot of comedy, it's just that He has so many bad actors. See, God has a great script. It's just that we aren't carrying out the script. And I think John would agree with that because he says his whole purpose in writing is that we might have complete joy. You know, as as John is writing chapter 1 and verse 4, he's got to be thinking of something else that he wrote down, which were the words of the Lord Jesus In John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Jesus says, I'm saying these things so that your joy might be full. Now if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, you know what it is that Jesus is talking about when he says this? When he says, I'm saying these very things so that your joy... May be made full. Well, if you look in John chapter 15, the whole content, the whole context is about abiding in Christ. It's about having a close relationship with Him. And Jesus is saying, if you will have a close relationship with me, you will have joy. You see, joy comes in the presence of God. David said in Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy, in thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And that's the same thing John is telling us here in 1 John 1.4. He is saying there is no greater joy than to be in right relationship with God and therefore in right relationship with your brothers and sisters. Communion with God and communion with others when Christ is in the center is the very thing that God created you for. And when you are doing that, you will find fulfillment. That's fellowship, that's joy, that's life. So in introducing this book, John takes us back to the basics, back to the foundation, back to what the apostles proclaimed, and he evaluates it on the basis of three things, how, what, and why. The character, how was the message brought through a person, the Lord Jesus. The content, what is the message? Eternal life, it's having a right relationship with God. And the consequences, why did he proclaim the message? So that we might enjoy fellowship, both with God and with each other. Now did you catch something there? The character, the message came through a person, a relationship. The content is life. What is life? A relationship. The result or the consequences that we might have a relationship and fellowship with each other and with God. It's all about relationships. And that's what John is going to develop in this letter. He's going to talk about relationships in the family of God. And if you're sitting here this morning and your relationships aren't quite right, whether it's with God or whether it's with others, then you stick around because John is the mender. And as we go through this letter, he's going to write to repair those relationships. Or better yet, If your relationships aren't right, then why not settle that this morning? Why not come to the Lord Jesus, the person through whom God has spoken, the Word of life, and come into right relationship with Him so that you might enjoy the life, the ultimate relationship that He offers to you. I'm going to ask the praise team to come and they're going to lead us in a chorus together. And as they sing, however God may have spoken to your heart this morning, I'm going to ask you to come forward. They're going to sing this morning. We're going to sing about how the Lord Jesus is faithful and true, and he will be faithful and true to you if you will give your life to him today. You come as we sing together.